When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, 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 and welcome to the latest episode of the Brighton Rock podcast, the podcast about the beautiful club within the beautiful game. A club without a manager at the moment, but hopefully that's going to change very soon as we await the imminent announcement of who the new man might be. Assuming it is a guy, of course. Um, joining me for this latest episode, our first for about 10 days, I think, actually, is uh, Mr. Peter Marsh, as usual. Hello, Peter. Hey, Russ. Uh, is it we true have... that the rumour is true that you might be going to Chelsea soon? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're after everybody that's got anything to do with Brighton in any way whatsoever. I think, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing tea ladies are going, uh, carpenters, all sorts of people, yeah. Carpenters? <laughs> you think they're going to have a, their own internal carpenter too? Or do you mean Richard Carpenter? Which one? Well, both. Yeah, yeah any connections <laughs> at all, yeah. Um, we, we also have with I us... I your joke's a bit wooden there, I would have said. Oh, no, stop it, stop it. Uh, please, I, I, let's not get into puns. This, uh, yeah, well, maybe we will, actually. I'm tempted to now that you've mentioned it. Anyway, we also have with us the gent, Mr. Raymond Wright. Hello, Raymond. Welcome back. Well, good good afternoon, good evening. And uh, it's a whole whole new era about to start at Brighton and Hove Albion. Yeah, I know. And who is that new guy going to be? We'll, we'll wait to find out. I know you're itching to talk about all the various prospects and options and, and so on. So we'll get to that very soon. We're also joined by a familiar face that you might have heard on various match day specials over the last season or two. It's Alan. Hello, Alan from Surrey. How are you doing? <laughs> Hi, Russ. How are you doing? Yeah, um, we, I think we're in the tunnel, what they call the tunnel, I think, with the managerial selection. Uh, everything's yeah. gone very quiet, apart from... Uh, from in Italy, where they seem to be talking a lot about it, but uh, yeah. we're hoping to see some news quite soon. Indeed, indeed, yeah. yeah. Um, it's been a while now since uh, since Graham left. It was uh, what was that about? Sort of, it was recalling this Sunday. So what's that? Uh, nine days ago, I think it is now. Um, and well, we had this four week break for various reasons, um, namely the Queen's death postponing some fixtures. Firstly, uh, secondly, the rail strike, but then didn't happen, but it's not been put back on anyway for the Palace game. Then the international break. And then, of course, uh, finally, we do play uh, Anfield uh, in what was four weeks from uh, our last our last uh, competitive match. Um, I think that gap has been a blessing in disguise because it's given us time to be able to take our time to make sure we can get the right person. Um and also to still, after that, have time to prepare the squad under that new guidance, um, with that new new coach as well. So that's all. Uh, that's all still to come. Um, well, what's um, what's happened really is um, we've we've had a number of names on the list, um, and it's been whittled down 
gradually. A couple of names from the home nations that were mentioned was Steve Cooper from Forest, who I know is a manager that they will like and has done really well. I think maybe the timing's wrong. Just getting in the Premier League, uh, signing 133,000 players um, and um, obviously very soon into his time in the Premier League. Just didn't feel like the right timing for that one, although I think we may have been interested in him still. I don't know. Another one mentioned was Postacoglu at Celtic. That one's gone very quiet. And the bulk of the other names mentioned have been the ones, apart from people who have just put two and two together and made five, the Nathan Joneses and Russell Martins, who I don't think are really on the agenda nowadays, at least not at the moment, uh, unless they go on to do greater things prior to us considering them. But the ones that we have looked at are typical uh, Tony Bloom-sounding targets um, out of left field, continental in this particular case. Um, we had Nutson linked with us, of course, from Boda Glimt. We've had De Zerbi linked, who was with Shakhtar and previously Sassuolo, and who is currently available and is now the red-hot favourite to take the job. Um, we've also had Bo Svensson mentioned, who's um, a Danish uh, a coach, still pretty young, working in Mainz, which, of course, has done pretty well for managers coming into the Premier League. Uh, essentially, Jurgen Klopp and um, Thomas Tuchel have followed the same lines uh, from Mainz to Dortmund to England. Um, so that, that will be a, a fitting kind of thing, maybe in one sense there. But it does sound like that's not really going to be the main uh, the main target now. Um, and who else have I missed out, guys? I think uh, the, the Hayes, the, the, the lens manager. Oh, yeah, that's it. Hayes, Heiss. I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. H-A-I-S-E, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, he, he was somebody that seemed to be a focus and started to have rumours circulated on that one. And Peter, do you, was that some, someone else you were going to mention all the same? No, same uh, as famous Raymond. Yeah, they're the main four. And I think they've all seemingly, with the possible exception of Knutson, who's got a slightly different element, all overachieved with lower middle table teams to take them to kind of upper middle table teams and pushing towards Europe in different, in, in big, big European leagues. So Italy, mm. France and Germany, along with Spain and England, are playing the big five. Knutson's slightly different in the sense he's got a team from the second division. He's more of a Potter sort of equivalent. He's got a team in the second division in Norway to the point where they could, they could be um, challenging for the top, yeah, for, for titles and winning stuff. But yeah, so the other three have all got, you know, that sort of similarity that they've done kind of what Potter's done with us, that they kind of, yeah, they've, they've matched that sort of, like, progress. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Raymond... I mean, looking at, at some stats, uh, I, I looked up before we started today, just to recheck some, but it's interesting to see the sort of goals for and against um, of, of those different candidates um, and compare them to Potter. If you compare Potter and the last... At Brighton for the last two games, bearing in mind it's a 38 game season. Uh, last uh, year we did our best ever, which was 42 for and 44 against. Previous season we only scored 40 and conceded 46. And that moved us from 16th place um, up to 9th. Um, and we got a lot more points. Obviously, the distribution of goals or, or concessions were better spread in terms of getting things. The, the top goal scoring, but probably the weakest league, was Nutsum, obviously, in, in the top Norwegian league. But I have to say that the year, the first year they won the championship over there in 20, um, they did actually score an amazing 103 goals, which apparently was the highest ever. Wow. And, uh, they've got something like, um, sort of, 
80 points or something out of the possible 90. So you know, they did superbly well. Only conceded 32 goals. Um, last year, they weren't quite as effective. Won again, um, and, but only scored 59 goals, conceded uh, 23, uh, 23. I mean, sorry, 25. This year, they're lying in third place, but, but still doing quite well. Um, De Zerbe scored quite a lot of goals, but always conceded, conceded quite a lot. So his last two seasons in Italy, um, 19-20, scored 64, conceded 56, and the year before, scored 69, conceded 63. And it was interesting that Potter the other day said, it doesn't matter about football, uh, how many goals you score, as long as you always score more than one other person <laughs> than, the, than the opposition. Well, Deserbi obviously feels he wants to score, doesn't mind conceding some, as long as he scored goals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And these are, I mean, all of these these candidates, and it does seem Roberto Deserbi is the, is the red-hot favourite now, but all of them are, are pretty much, as friend of the show Jack described it, hipster choices, very, very much Albion choices. Uh, man- managerially speaking or coaching speaking. Um, would you go along with that, Alan? <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I mean, what is important is that we, we have an innovative coach. I mean, it basically fits our DNA. And also uh, because, you know, if you if you look back at the Potter era, one thing we were good at, particularly near the end of his tenure, was that we were very good at, uh, with our defensive shape and actually cutting out uh, some of the big players in, in the big games. Um, and I think that's going to be important as we move forward. That's a little bit, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to get someone in before the Liverpool game to, to kind of get things organised a little bit because obviously we're going to be facing Liverpool and they've got some dangerous players. And, and, and the last Liverpool game that we played them, you know, away, we, we, we pretty well nullified Salah. I think, I think he did score, but I think you, you always feel as though we're kind of, we, we've got things under a little bit more control. So I think it's quite important um, from that aspect. So, yeah, and the innovative coach is very important, I think. Yeah, I think um, the all, all four of these managers seem to be very proactive. They seem to be, as Peter said, you know, they've done well on limited resources, so to speak, uh, proportional to the other teams in the division. Um, they're good at developing players. They play a proactive style, quite an adventurous passing style. Um, some variations between tactics in and amongst them, but um, essentially there's some there's some likening traits between each of them with the Albion already, um, and with Deserbi, I think probably is is probably the nearest match. One thing that um, also to mention is that some of these candidates are younger than others, and I think Deserbi, being 43 years old, only recently turned 43, um, who is of course Italian as you guess from his name, um, he's um, he, he seems to be. A good age, I think, um, it doesn't really matter what age as such, but I know speaking to, to you, Raymond, off-air on a, on a previous conversation a few days ago, you said yeah, that's, that's true, but older coaches may possibly start to get a bit more rigid with their thinking as they get to a certain point in time. So the fact that he's 43, he's going to be with those fresher ideas for longer, potentially. Um, you don't expect he's going to stay with the Albion for 20 to 30 years, so it's not as if... It's an it's a issue in that regard, of course. But, uh, um, I mean, that's one consideration. The fact he's available, of course, is the other thing. We can tie up a deal if he's interested without having to deal with a third party. In other words, getting a, a 
a deal agreed with an existing club, which is the case with pretty much all of the other candidates there. So that will be one big advantage, particularly when we've just gained what are reported to £22.5 for um, compensation for Graham and his coaching staff and our former coaching staff that were already there, <laughs> he says. I, I thought, sorry, just to interrupt. I thought that Tony Bloom said that if they were really serious in compensation, they could just give him the Chelsea Football Club. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, Alan, back to you, because I mean, would you would you agree that that does put him at the forefront in in, in a few re- for a few reasons? It, it, it looks that way. I mean, going back to this innovation thing, I think uh, looking at the the Aston Villa game the other day and the and the West Ham Everton. I mean, basically, it was dross watching that, in my opinion. And I really do not want us to go full back with bringing in the manager kind of serves up like that kind of football really uh, no real structure it was just uh, it was just really poor I thought so you know you kind of watch that game and you think oh I'm so relieved that you know what we've seen with Brighton for the last few seasons has been something quite quite entertaining I just hope we carry that on really um, yeah and um, Peter were you going to say yeah something? I was just going to pick up on the age thing I do the, the one downside obviously of a younger manager is there may be a more more chance of them leaving quicker as well that's so that's the other side of the you know someone if I think Knutson's a bit older maybe he might be more happy to stick around with Albion if he came for longer rather than you know kind of well, you know, leaving if I don't know we have one good season or whatever but you, yeah you don't know that's the case anyway it will depend on the person but yeah I agree with um, Alan I'm very happy that we're not going down a route of well especially like two of the those two games you mentioned both of which were dreadful were both won by a former England, uh, I put it in inverted commas, legends, who were basically seem to have been appointed to jobs based on their football ability rather than actually their managerial ability. And I'm so glad we're not going down anywhere near anything like that and yeah. trying to like kind of basically bring in a, someone based on how good they were as a player. Yeah, the, when you look at all the analysis and um, people like The Athletic are excellent, actually, a lot of really good detailed analysis on various subjects through their podcasts and some of those tactical um, little videos they do as well. They did one on the Deserbi, which I recommend people to to watch to see what he's all about with how he likes to set up teams. He'll have, I think it's a three five two, or he'll have a, a, a progressive three four three, or a team that will change about and playing with wide attackers and cutting back in, creating space and overloads and all that sort of stuff. He goes into a lot of detail about that, and it is it is amazing how much detail you can get now on mm. coaches. It's amazing. You get, right, let's find out. And there's loads, isn't there, Alan? And, um, yeah. It, um, the thing with it is, I think we've become more progressive as a nation with regard to football now anyway. I think I, I'm exactly the right generation, I think, to have noticed this. Having gone, I think, in my 20s when I was at college and in uni, I had mates who were into football. And it was all becoming a lot more popular at that point in time with international, you know, European club football and all that sort of stuff. And people were getting more and more into it then. Of course, it's gone on immeasurably since. But um, I think people are generally more intelligent thinking about football now in a lot more numbers. And I think the coaches, that generation of coaches is now coming through, including, as we've seen with Graham Potter, English coaches, who are a lot more progressive in their variety and flexibility with tactics um with thinking outside the box if i can use that horrendous expression um and various other <laughs> things like that literally thinking outside the box as well probably in some ways and and i do think that that's the way forward and as as um as you just one of you just alluded there about as it was you alan saying about aston villa you know that it's becoming very tired 
and turgid and dour that kind of football this sort of just general it's like a general kind of shunting type of football that you see where there's not really any proper focus or or, or bigger picture thinking there's it's, it's just about set the team up go out do your best it's I, I mean I'm simplifying it obviously here but it does feel that things have moved on immeasurably now and Tony Bloom being Tony Bloom is very much looking to be a part of that new wave of coaches so I think all all coaches will appoint from now will be more progressive I think and it's exciting and I really hope you get it right but it's exciting to think that the next person whoever that is from that shortlist um, is likely to carry on the good work at least to some extent that Graham Potter did before and maybe we can establish further our reputation as a progressive club. Alan? Yeah I was just I was just really this is really a question really I've watched some of these uh, YouTube uh, videos where they're showing, if you like, his tactics or whatever. But has anybody actually seen him uh, on the touchline? Is he one of these uh, typical, stereotypical, emotional Italians? Are we going to get a totally different, unpotter-like? He sounds like on, he's, on the yeah, he's a bit, yeah. Sounds a bit like he's very much more proactive on the, in the dugout than uh, than Potter. And he's got one or two assistants who look like you wouldn't want to mess with them if you're uh, oh. a opposing team. I think the thing That's is, if, if, I think the thing about the generation of people being more thoughtful, I think actually that goes for a lot of the players as well, certainly at the top level. And I think Graham Potter was all about imposing enough of the strategies and the thought processes and the, and the, um, and the, and the overall objectives individually and collectively was all imposed before match day and before they went out onto the pitch to kick off. So he didn't really feel he had to... Um, to impart much information, apart from basic tactical changes, um, on the team, that they can think for themselves, adapt, and make informed decisions in play. And to that end, he didn't feel like he had to be very animated, although he was on occasions, wasn't he, when he felt he needed to be. Deserby may be a lot more animated, and that's fine as well, as long as that works. If it works as well, not a problem. I know a lot of fans love to see that still, and if it's got a, a purpose and a and a point, then it's, I think that's fine. Um, Raymond? I was going to actually pick up on several points there. First of all, Alan's one about uh, sort of Aston Villa-type managers and people like that. I wonder how much they take with them the tactics and sort of strategies from the best coaches they played under. So mm. they're not applying original so much original thinking, but applying what they know worked when they were playing. Um, there's an interesting article um, in Sussex Live which irritated the hell out of me last night. I was trying to read it, so I kept on being thrown out of Sussex Live and having to go back, and I'd get back and read another two lines and be thrown out again. But it was talking about Deserbi, comparing him with Potter in quite a lot of ways, and they were saying that what Potter would do would probably change tactics rather more, similar playing style, playing out from the back, but whereas Potter would change structure, and people's positional things, Deserbi would be more likely to change the tempo at which the team was playing. And he would be quite happy for them to play slowly, as long as when they move decisively, they move quickly. So that they would, he would change the tempo and get them suddenly changing pace in a game, which I can see what they're doing. If you're always playing at the same pace and not changing gear, for all the tactical change, you're not making that decisive breakthrough necessarily, to suddenly change the tempo of the game because the other team's been lulled into a false sense of security. Yeah. I can see that 
you might actually be able to get in behind them. And that it might leave you more exposed. Hence, the more goals that deserve his teams have conceded, but equally, the more goals they've scored. So yeah. um, I can see that there is a change there. And within the article, they quoted a journalist from, uh, I think, Slovenia or Slovakia. They also quoted a journalist who follows, uh, based in Italy. <laughs> it was their comments. And one of them, I can't remember which one, said he was rather Conti-like. Oh. So if I could, but coming back to Peter's point and the age, I don't know actually if it's a bad thing, Peter, if, we, if we're going to attract the best young managers, even if they only stay for three years, a la Potter, and we get a reputation for being able to pick the best young managers, and they get the profile managing with us, hmm. that the next time round we'll attract another good top young manager. Now, there'll be a time when we have to stop that, but at the moment where we're still trying to move up the league and develop and attract the best young players, ad- adapting the same sort of strategy with the managing and coaching staff has a certain logic to it. So I can understand Tony and Paul and David Weir wanting to go down that route. I wasn't uh, particularly saying it was a bad thing, just more that that might be a, a benefit of someone who's a bit older. Angel. I wasn't particularly saying that would be a problem. I, I don't have an issue with... I mean, yeah, we Premier League managers don't tend to last that long anyway, so it's probably about a year and a half, like that, the average, isn't it? Like that, it, years, it, so. it, it would be my main concern. I think I voiced it somewhere along the line, but that whether De Zerbe, um they would want to move on, but I can't remember where or when, but it was because he did his three years at Suzuka. And then, <laughs> and then he... And, and then he announced that he was leaving at the end of the season. And then yeah. he went, and then he went to Ukraine. Yeah. All right. Ukraine yeah. situation, you know, obviously yeah. Russian invasion and everything. Hmm. But to his credit, obviously he got all his players out before he left. Yeah, which is a more left, character, isn't it? As well? They are playing obviously at home in in Poland, but it's not. You know, I'm not sure to what degree he he felt I've achieved what I can here. And then I need to move on. I think his Palomo experience, which is his one really poor run, hmm. I think it was unfortunate. But I think to only be given about three months with clearly what was a poor and disorganised team and not, all right, he lost seven matches in a row, but he didn't have really any time to be able to rebuild. Yeah. I mean, Palomo as well, we, we should say, I think they... I think he was sacked there, but he was, uh, they had something like 12 managers in four years or something insane. Um, so that tells two you. Two years, I think, wasn't it? It was. In two years? Yeah, it? less than two seasons. I, I mean, was... That might include one or two caretakers, but it was, yeah, it was like every two months. They Eat your heart out, Chelsea and Watford. And um, speaking of, uh, speaking of, I'll go to you, Peter, because I know you wanted to make a point, but just can I just say the reason if there is any delay in, in, uh, in being able to secure Deserby might be in us, obviously, our consultations with Chelsea, finding out who they want to be their next manager. We want to make sure they're happy with our with our choice of uh, progression. Because apparently we're a feeder club, according to a load of plastic fans on Twitter at the moment. Uh, anyway, sorry, Peter, yeah, over to you. <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to say, back on top of what he was, we were saying about Ukraine and how he, he waited for the play. And I think it probably at that point, there wasn't any point in bit. They weren't sure if the league was going to restart again at any point or start again. So I think that's probably why he left. Shakhtar, but as long as Topper's like staying behind and making sure his players got out, he also oh, then t- 
he also then turned yeah. down the Bologna job recently because his friend Sinisa Mihailovic had been diagnosed, I think, with leukaemia and then was sacked by Bologna very controversially. And mm-hmm. they wanted him as their new manager and he turned them down straight away because they because he was like, oh, I can't do that to my friend. I can't take the job and after what you did to him. So he's obviously a man with a, you know, really kind of good moral compass, which actually is a really positive thing, you know, kind of in a general sense. He also appears to have a massive entourage, which considering we're, we don't have any staff at the moment is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Got plenty not, of spaces. That that's the question I was going to ask. The only thing I haven't been able to suss out is, what sort of coaching team he has with him. And so he's got about eight or nine I've read about. And one at the couple of them are kind of called, I think, fitness coaches or something like that. Seem to be quite, a, like two or three of them seem to be called fitness coaches. They seem to be a goalkeeping coach and an attacking coach. And yeah, they seem to have all sorts of, uh, so. <laughs> oh, I might need to uh, team to get to games at this rate. The, the other question I would ask, and I, I saw it raised in the context of the lens manager, Hayes, for lack of a better way of pronouncing it, um, was was English, how strong the English is. Because if you, I mean, the one thing I felt with Bielsa up at Leeds, he was always having to work through an interpreter, it appeared. And I think that if you can't communicate so easily directly with the players, um, that that could be a weakness. I have no idea what deserve be. I, I can say, I think apparently he does speak I, English and Spanish as well, which helps with obviously a lot of our South American and Spanish. I, I, but also, um, I think Bielsa didn't actually did actually speak English. I he did, chose yeah. not to do it in press conferences. I think his English was probably perfectly good. It's just he was for whatever reason didn't want to be misquoted or whatever. Or yeah, so he chose not to speak that, in press conferences. On that matter, he does speak pretty good English by all accounts. Yeah. And I think what it is is apparently he's got a very eloquent, detailed way of speaking. Uh, when he's addressing the media in Spanish, and he didn't want to lose a significant degree of that by not having the the, the full eloquence in in a second or third language or whatever it would be for him. So apparently that is li- literally the reason. And also, I mean, also of course, it's a bit of a, a farce, isn't it? Really? No, but we're also to give him think, thinking time, wouldn't it? Exactly. It, yeah. Yeah. It's, no, a, it's, but, it's a shield, isn't it, to hide behind a little bit as well, perhaps? Maybe. Maybe. But yeah. People like Nutson and Svensson being Scandinavian, they quite often have quite good English. So I'm, I think that they might be reasonably strong in English. But, I, I mean, that's my supposition. I have yeah. no idea. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's it. So, yeah, we still don't know, but Deserby is certainly the favourite. Um, we're waiting on news, and it could come as soon as we finish recording this, and I'll have to add an epilogue to the episode. But um, uh, essentially, it seems that he's he's had talks. There's rumours he's already had talks with Tony um, and that he might have been in England at the, at this weekend. So he may even have gone to the to the uh, friendly match that didn't happen at uh, the Annex Stadium, <laughs> where uh, we played our old friends, our new our new um, our new best friends, Chelsea, uh, and apparently lost two one. And we haven't been able to find out who scored the goal for Brighton. Um, but um, it, I think Chelsea, it wouldn't have been any of their team from the, the midweek European game. Which, incidentally, um, just to mention, they didn't win. They conceded. A goal, so it ended up being a draw, and there were some boos as the players came off the pitch. I don't remember hearing BT Sport in excruciating detail asking Graham Potter about those boos. I thought that was compulsory nowadays uh, with Graham Potter interviews. So maybe it's just for little old Brighton. I don't know. Not that I want to have a dig at the media again or anything, but um, uh, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. As it stands, I was very interesting, actually, Russell, that you know. 
we've, you know, within eight days of leaving, the mm. Potter and all his coaches are back down at the Amex for a friendly match. So it must mean that, you know, whilst obviously the club is very disappointed and everything else, that the club accepts what has happened and that there is a reasonable relationship between the parties, mm. uh, yeah. which might, you know, who knows, uh, be something that somebody like Bruno in the future when he's got more experience, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, one assumes that this this uh, friendly was put on, obviously, to keep match shot and this upper match fitness for us in particular. And of those teams that didn't have a game, three of them were in the north. One was Chelsea and the other one was Palace, which would, although that would be a perfectly logical thing to actually have that as the the opponent, uh, seeing as they didn't have a fixture and they're also quite local to us as well. Um, it would feel vaguely ridiculous to play the team that we are not playing. <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a, it would have been a good sort of quiz program, wouldn't it? Yeah, when exactly. Crystal Palace uh, on the day they were meant to play Crystal Palace, and it didn't count or yeah. something. Who did we play instead of Crystal Palace when we couldn't play Crystal Palace? Yeah. Um, well, I suppose if we'd have won the game, I suppose we could then maybe say, well, actually, yeah, that, that counts. That's our uh, Premier League fixture done. Lovely. <laughs> we could have, uh, who knows? Who knows? Anyway, uh, any any other words on Deserbi? Any other observations or information anyone's got on him? Well, can I just throw out one question? If hmm. somebody like a Russell Martin um, was sort of interested, whether we and depending on, on Zerbi's team, whether we would want to bring somebody in like that who knows the English game to help him. Um, and I know he's managing Swansea at the moment, but he's young, he's from Brighton. Um, or who else could we involve? Should we involve Lalana or somebody to help the continuity between the Potter era and the new one? I mean, be it Zerbi, be it Nutson, be it Svensson, I mean, whoever it might be. I think um, probably it will be someone internal rather than anyone. I don't think well, there's any point bringing well, someone in for that role. I would have thought it would be like Cross or Lalana if they do do that. Yeah, I would have thought so. I don't think it would be some one of these other, as you said, Russell Martin or Nathan Jones, those kind of people that we might have considered for the main role straight away in the past that we might now consider for what you're suggesting, Raymond. I don't, I don't think it would be them. Sort of, uh, they uh, would uh, want to do that. And Lalana, I, I mean, I thought Cross must must be working hard because he had the friendly match yesterday. And the other under twenty one match. I think that someone else is in charge under twenty threes while he's in charge of the first team. Yeah, but he had all the second team coaches with him doing the first team. <laughs> yeah, and I, I know you, we've spoken about this off air, Raymond, but I'm um, I'm not going to mention the name. There's a certain person who's managing a non league team. It's a very good. Uh, degree at the moment who has an Albion connection from the past both uh, as a player and briefly in in uh, a coaching role uh, who might be somebody that would fit that bill in the future but they wouldn't the, the fans of that particular club in West Sussex probably wouldn't thank me for mentioning his name so we'll leave that <laughs> we'll leave that <laughs> one <laughs> yeah he'd, he'd be a good fit but yeah I mean he's doing a great job uh, that particular person. I, think, I don't think anyone's ever jumped from the uh, National League South to the Premier League, though, yet. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, he's doing a hell of a job, actually, that particular person. Uh, we might talk about, um, say, for example, the National League South and other leagues and how teams are getting on them. Uh, a short one on this episode. Alan, back to you, sir. Yeah, two things. One is uh, you mentioned about the media not mentioning mentioning the booing. Actually, I think it was our own Glenn Murray who mentioned it on Football Focus. 
Yes. Exactly. You made a point which I thought was quite good. You made, made, it, it, made me chuckle, it made me chuckle, actually, yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing, I, yeah, the, the last thing I wanted to say about Deserby uh, and any coach that comes in, and I, 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 maybe this sounds a little bit negative, I'm not sure, but it's just a little bit of a, a thought. And that is that normally when a new manager comes in, it's when somebody else has done badly and they, they come in and they've, there's only one way direction they can take it really, and that's upwards. Yeah. Whereas it's it's unusual for somebody to come in, you know, when we're when we were actually doing quite well. Yeah. You know? yeah. So it's it's going to be a tough tough situation, I think, and we're going to have to give them a little bit of time uh, for him to come in because obviously we're all we're all looking at the, at the table at the moment, fourth position, mm. and yeah. uh, you know, okay. a couple a couple of poor results, and suddenly we could trundle down the league a little bit more, and then. I'm not. I'm not suggesting for one minute that we're going to all lose patience, but just, just a, a. It's an interesting kind of psychological thing, I think, as we kind of move into this new era. There but, is a uh, pressure, isn't there? You're right. There is a pressure on it because um, we've been doing well up to up to the pause, uh, and that pause has been a pause for other clubs as well, which, along with a couple of other results going our way, has meant that we're staying in fourth place at the moment, and that yeah, that status may change slightly by the time. Um, uh, well, I'm not sure if it will or not. Actually, by the time we next play, but um, I don't think it, don't think it will. But we, you know, we are going to be right up there. And last time we we saw the Albion play, we thrashed Leicester five two and could have got a lot more goals. So it's yeah. you know you've got to hit the ground running in one sense, but we've got to give them time. If uh, if not, Peter. Yes. Well, if we're anywhere near fourth by the end of October, we'll have done extremely well because uh, we've got like Liverpool away first up, then Tottenham home, and then a couple of more winnable ones at Brentford and home to Forest, and then we've got City away and Chelsea home. So. If whoever comes in can keep us anywhere near fourth place by the end of October, <laughs> that's done extremely well. So I, in a way, it's obviously it's not a, a great start in some ways because it'd be quite nice to get for whoever it is to get their first win under their belt. On the other hand, it's arguably you know no, the expectations will be lower for that. I mean, we'd already wouldn't have expected to get the same results we've been getting recently in in October anyway. So to come in oh, with yeah. games where. You know, no, it's not no pressure because obviously we've beaten Tottenham at home a few times recently. We've got draws against Chelsea and at Liverpool. You know, we've never we've never got anything at City, but otherwise, you know, we've got games that we've got stuff points at before. Mm. But it's yeah, it it was never it's not an easy start for whoever it is, and you know, it'll be quite interesting. First, obviously, first home game for them will be Tottenham home, which would be quite a uh, mm. an interesting one to start with, especially if he's not the greatest uh, defensive manager and he's up against Kane and Son. Having oh played Salah and Mane in his first game, and then sorry, <laughs> Salah and uh, Nunes in his first game, and then his fifth game against Ireland. It's going to be yeah. could be interesting month. Oh god! <laughs> um, two two final points for me on managers. One one name I didn't mention earlier, by the way, which I think we were vaguely linked with. I don't know if there's any truth. It was Gajardo, who I think is the River Plate manager, who comes very highly rated, but possibly too highly rated for us. And there was no real kind of close links on that one. But that was another name that was mentioned. Um, so, so that was one thing uh, to say. And um, the, the other thing's just gone out of my head. Actually, I can't remember what it was. I was going to say about managers. Oh, Vieira, Vieira at. Uh... The Brazilian stuff. Oh, that was it. Yeah, yeah, that was it. He's the um, Palmeiras coach, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Ferreira is it? I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I mean, the other thing thing that I noticed that people are talking the sort of the sort of team structure that a lot of the people we've mentioned have. It's sort of a, a, normally a, a variational three four three, and quite often they're quoting um, three four one two. Hmm. Which implies you've got two forwards, and 
it did occur to me whether all of these people are going to thank Potter for leaving us without many forwards. You've got whole wingers and sort of number 10s and midfielders. But in terms of actual out-and-out sort of forwards, really only um, Welbeck and Anunda. So mm. is he going to... Do you think that's going to be an area that they're going to... Most of them are going to want to strengthen, have a, have mm-hmm. a more options? They'd probably want another striker, wouldn't they, I think, which I think we still don't know. Maybe even Graham Potter did want another striker. We don't know if that was a case of we couldn't get what we wanted or he wasn't that fussed or a bit of both. But um, I would imagine he probably would want another one, although things were working in the area that they needed to, which was goals coming from all over the pitch, attacking wide players and midfielders and so on. But um, I'm not, yeah, who who knows? Who knows? And we, we don't know who that man is yet. Still yet to be confirmed, of course, anyway. Uh, Peter? The irony is that Potter's gone from a team with two strikers to one with basically one, <laughs> effectively. Uh, Albanyang and May, I suppose you could say Broyer Bro- 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 or anything as well. So they've got two as well. So yeah. he's gone from one club who hasn't really got any strikers to another one who hasn't got any strikers. Speaking of formations, by the way, I, I think my favourite is Todd Bowley, isn't it? I think the Chelsea owner. Is that right, Todd? Todd yeah. Um, I favour his 4 4 3 formation. I think that one's. Yeah, nice. Rush Goalie, ideal. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, and also I like, I like the idea of his All-Stars team. Of course, what a oh, great idea that is. The North v. the South. It's the most American suggestion of the lot, isn't it? I mean, it almost makes the European Super League sound like a good idea when he comes out with that. And where the hell are we going to fit that into the schedule to start with? Secondly, uh, he said about it that there was the, the need for more uh, more generation of money that would not make as much money as we could do. Well, I think we're making plenty, to be honest. I don't think we really need to have another fixture. Um, I can't imagine anyone would be interested in playing with arch-rival teams, really, because uh, you're going to have yeah. London side to arrive direct rivals with each other and you've got the same with uh, with the north of England I know that that's that by definition is international football as well but oh, come on really and that, where do you think he's going to make the money from as well he was talking about 200 million pounds to put down to lower levels I don't understand who's gonna who's gonna pay who's that who's gonna where are we gonna get that money from I've always found that such a diluted notion this just reformatting and recalibrating a bunch of Footballers into a different order, just like the hundred equivalent, basically. Yeah, just, well, I think that's a good point, Peter. Actually, with the hundred, because they've tried to come up with this franchise idea, but there's no sense of identity. I think with, exactly. with the, yeah. people don't relate to them, and <laughs> all the people who play, sorry, say, for Sussex or Surrey or Middlesex or whoever, aren't necessarily playing for the counties. I could understand it if they'd said right. Kent and Sussex will be one team, so at least you'll be able to identify with half the players and perhaps Surrey and Hampshire another, and Middlesex and Essex the third, and so on. But I think anybody who goes and tries to say, we're going to change it and move the players around to play for something different, some sort of franchise arrangement, all-stars team or whatever you call it, there is no identity. Mm-hmm. And it's they have a tradition of all-stars games in the States, but nobody really pays any blinds of attention in terms of what the result is. All it is is it's a kudos thing to get into the All-Stars team. Yeah, and with the, I mean, there's a very real danger that the European Super League, or the greedy league, as I call it, is going to rear its ugly head again soon, because it certainly sounded as if Bowley's in favour of that being reprised. We already know there's two or three, uh, well, there's three uh, other owners, namely Agnelli at Juve, and the Spanish guys who are um, who are still 
digging their heels in about that coming back at some point in the future. Um, I, I, quite honestly, if it ever, ever does happen, they can go hang. I don't want them anything to do with the Premier League if it ever happens. But we've been through all that before. But Alan, Alan, let's get you. Back. You know, I've I really, got, I think I mentioned this before on, on one of their WhatsApp groups, but I think, I think Bowley's uh, is keen on this European Super League concept. Yeah. And uh, he's kind of thinking of different, different ideas that maybe he can send out some sweeteners to uh, to the other clubs who wouldn't be a, be part of that. And this is one of his little blunt ideas that he thinks he can uh, suggest. Well, and and he, uh, yeah, and he's going to see if we can get some traction from it, maybe or something. I don't know. Yeah, but I, uh, I, you're right. Probably sneaky, but um, yeah, yeah. Scooter, hot yeah. off the press to uh, to, as someone that I've just seen an article on in the Athletic that we're on the brink of appointing Deserby. And he's the only actual manager they've, they've spoken to, according to um, Andy Naylor and the Athletic. Right. And uh, he's now back in Italy, and it doesn't sound like they're going to announce it tomorrow, obviously, for obvious reasons, but which will be Monday. Um, but it sounds like he's bringing his whole backroom staff, and there's been slight delays around work permits and that sort of thing, but that's why it's not happening yet. Not happened yet, but it sounds like it's pretty much done. Yes, the post-Brexit era. Well, that's brilliant news. And we're talking at five to six on Sunday evening for reference in case anyone's trying to timeline <laughs> this. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, that, that would be superb, quite honestly. If, yeah, it's uh, his first fun. choice from the start and we haven't actually spoken to anyone else according to this. Yeah. I mean, I, I think he sounds like he should be our first choice anyway. The fact that he apparently is and we get, get our first choice is, is key, isn't it? Because if, if we failed with the first choice, there's always that awkward bit of, Okay, you're our second choice. Can we uh, can we convince you to come? And we don't have to worry about that issue. Should that be an issue, Alan? Yeah, I was just I was just thinking. Actually, you mentioned about the fact that we're we're, we're now Chelsea's um, feeder club. So does that mean if he's bringing eight staff with him, does that mean we ha- we get forty four million when he goes to Chelsea <laughs> rather than twenty two? <laughs> Like it, like yeah. it, yeah. This, this is all pre-planning. You see, we're planning ahead. We're thinking yeah. of everything. <laughs> but actually, I mean, this is. I think, Alan, you're you're hit on something that's quite important. That I think we were paying. I'm not sure what it was, but something around two million plus bonuses to Potter, supposedly, reportedly. Um, but Potter was right down you know, one of the bottom people being paid in the Premier League as a manager. Are we? Is this a time when? we as a club should be, and the 22-odd million uh, will help this, where we're going to be paying not only the, play, the, the sort of coaches coming in more, so we have more protection from that viewpoint, but also whether we should be raising to a degree the sort of salary levels from around the, the 50 to £55,000 a week mark, the sort of... Um, uh, sort of two and a half, two and, two and three quarter million mark for for the players, so we can attract more players. Are, are we losing out in that way? And, and is this a moment to just update the model? Hmm. Interesting idea. Yeah, possibly so. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, we've got some big contracts that need to be uh, renewed if we want to. Trossard, McAllister. Uh, and, and these people are going to be demanding a lot higher salary, I would imagine. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be the test, really. Especially if, if both of those two have a good World Cup as well. 
I mean, that's yeah. where we're really going to struggle if, you know, we might actually, I think we were talking about it the last show or something like that as well, the last pod, and I reckon we might have to start looking at having contracts for 100,000 sort of thing if we're going to if we're going to keep the likes of Trossard and McAllister. It's a rumour, I think, at the moment, it's just, it could be completely wrong, but it's like Lalana, I think, and Duncan about 70k. But, I mean, that could be completely wrong. But if, yeah, I think they're going to have to significantly increase that if they're going to keep the better players we get, the more it's going to be harder to keep, to keep them. And, and the, the loss we'd have from losing those two and not, and not getting the value because they're only a year left in their contracts would be quite big as well. So, we, you know, it'd be worth the expanding the contractual area. If, if Potter, if, um, if, uh, Bloom really wants to be top 10 regularly, we really do need to increase that, I think, probably. Unless we're going to be continue just like basically losing, basically losing two or three players a summer, and eventually then on that base we'll go down because we won't have the the quality. You can't keep bringing in cheaper players to replace your expensive players and improving. It's it's physically yeah. impossible. The other thing is there's some big clubs in this division, bigger than us, um, clubs like Villa, Everton, who are not doing well at the moment. You're agreeing well, with Neil, then, are you? But yeah, good old Neil Morpay. We'll get on to him in part two, by the way. But but yeah, those clubs, as we've seen with Arsenal, will get it wrong sometimes, and they might get it wrong for a while, but then they'll get it right. And it's it's pretty tough to be in that top ten if the majority of them happen happen to be getting it right. Um, Everton are going to move into a sixty thousand stadium eventually. They'll get their finances sorted eventually. They will get a decent manager in. No offence, Frank. Well, I think um, also recruitment team as well as Everton. I mean, in fairness to Lampard, they've been pretty terrible for quite a yeah. long time. Yeah, that's true. Is that a dig at Neil as well? By the way, <laughs> and, 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 and they have Ancelotti is a good manager, you know, for example. So it's not as if all of the appointments have been rubbish. No, no, no. But they, they, the whole picture hasn't been fitted together nicely in the past. But they will get things right. Villa might have a good... I mean, they're, they're, they're not shy at spending loads of money. We've got Newcastle now that are certainly going to fall into that bracket. So just getting in top 10 year after year is, is, is always going to be a bit of a challenge, um, even if we're getting everything right as we are. And as you said, maybe we do need to look at that wage structure just being refined a little bit but do we need to look at some other ways of gaining income in order to do that because we don't have as big a stadium uh even now than any of those clubs we've just mentioned let alone the uh uh obviously the increase in Everton's ground coming up soon and so on um it's, it's going to get tougher Raymond. Yes, I think it, um just my thought is uh, Paul Barber having confirmed that we're hoping to have a uh, pre-season tour of, I think it's the east coast of North America, yeah. um, sort of the, the states next thing. I think uh, the size of of a stadium is important, but it's not all important. If mm. you can actually generate a fan base worldwide, and people like Manchester United, I mean, you meet people, and I've met people in Hong Kong who haven't really been necessarily far outside of Hong Kong. I mean, let alone to Manchester to watch United play, but they've got fans all over the world who support them. Mm. And uh, also, I think a lot of the other top English teams will have that. So we've got to try and attract a foreign fan base mm. in order that they buy the merchandise. I think that that is growing as well, isn't it? I think we are doing quite well. I would say in 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 succeeding in that regard, there seems to be an ever growing fan base in the States, which is why that's a good target place to go to for next year, um, of indigenous, uh, as in sort of born and bred, um, American citizens, as well as expats, obviously. Um, and I, I think that's one area of growth. I think, you know, say, for example, if we signed another Japanese player, 
on, on top of having uh, Mitama, of course, already, you know, that might start escalating the, the Asian market, for example. You see quite a lot of Japanese people at the Amex these days wearing Mitama mm-hmm. shirts. You know, every yeah. game, I see three or four or something, at least, if not more, and it's like... Flags as well. Lot, yeah. yeah. They're, they're a lot better audience than, like, the Iranian audience, who just were quite offensive online from judging by the... <laughs> and just complained about anything that was not... Um, there was a lot of them were kind of quite, you know, were the abuse was when Brighton did like, you know, kind of gay pride stuff and that sort of thing was just horrendous. Oh, really? I didn't. Yeah, some that. of the stuff that was on replies on Facebook and Twitter was just, yeah, really, really kind of unpleasant and nasty. I think it's safe to say you won't get that from the Japanese audience, that's for sure. But uh... but yeah, they, they, there's a lot, there's quite a lot. And of course, the Amex means quite a lot to them anyway, because of the fact they won South African rugby against Africa in rugby there. Yeah. There's already apparently quite a big kind of group. You know, Japanese people went and did tours of the Amex before, apparently, as well, because, yeah, because well, fact, it was where they won their biggest, probably biggest rugby win ever. Well, Alan, I think Roman's point about growing our global reach, I think if we can, if we can put down some tangible signs that uh, we are increasing that global reach in terms of TV rights for the global market and also sponsorships and various other ways in which we could maybe argue the case to get a better deal uh, than we are currently getting, that would be the way to go, wouldn't it? Definitely. I, mean, I think it's, it's a point that I've, I've asked questions of this from Paul Barber before trying to understand what, what the, what the club are actually doing. Because if you, if you think about it, I mean, we, what is, we get something like 32,000, just under 32,000 in their stadium. Chelsea have a capacity of what, 42,000? So, yeah. you know, if you, if you just go from match day revenue alone, 10,000 extra does not cover the difference that they can afford in wages. Mm-hmm. So they're getting their money from somewhere else. So they, it's, it's one of these discussions that would be interesting to, to analyze this. Maybe Kieran Maguire can maybe help us with this because trying to understand where they actually get all their revenue from, because it's, it, is it just from the, the very wealthy owners or is it because of the sponsorship they get? Is it the global reach, as you say, with the, the money they can get from overseas uh, revenue and advertisers, I'm not sure. I'll be interested to see where all this extra money comes from that we can't get. Yeah. Well, I think I think the sponsorship side of it uh, is not only the merchandise, isn't it? I mean, Amex are an international name, having them sponsoring uh, the stadium, the shirts, um, and, and the club, I mean, is, is huge. But from their viewpoint, the more that we expand our horizons and our, our reach that we've got, the more valuable it is for Amex, and arguably the, the more sponsorship we'll get from them. So, you know, we feed each other, if that makes sense. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Okay, final line for part one before we have a quick, well, actually two things before we have a quick break. Uh, firstly, whatever you're about to say, Peter. <laughs> I was just going to say the interesting thing from an uh, international point of view, player, international player point of view, is the uh, Sassuolo, who aren't obviously a, a huge club, um, in Italy, had three players, I think, in Italy squad that won the Euro 2023. Yeah, um, and the other guy, I can't remember his name. No, I can't remember. But they had three players, none of whom were that near before. Um, before they kind of before before that he came in basically, and they, he brought them through. So that was that must be quite exciting for some of our players who maybe are on the fringes of uh, international football. Yeah. And the other thing I was going to say before the uh, break was um friend of the show, Simon Tipple, has just got a, uh, a song idea already for Deservey, which is 
You to me are everything, the sweetest song that I could sing, Deserby. Deserby. <laughs> it's not, it's oh, not that really scanned, but Roberto Deserby's Blue and White Army doesn't really scan <laughs> that well, does it? No, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of bored of that as well. I want to, I want to go down a different line than, uh, than that. So I'm, I'm all in favour of Simon's unless anyone's got an even better ideas, but I don't well, know if do that work, by the way, but who knows? Do we, do we deserve, <laughs> deserve? <laughs> deserve, deserve. I mean, the thought or did Deserve deserve to win the Derby? Andy Bass has got one about palaces developing as well, apparently, uh, which we'll more on that later on. It's something to do with who the F of Palace. Some of these questions that we're raising would be Mm. good ones to raise at uh, the um, Seagulls Ever London meeting uh, when we have a certain person coming. Yeah, can, we, can we not talk about this, Raymond? I'm not able to attend this meeting. <laughs> it's, 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 it's painful, painful to hear. We're, yeah, Tony Bloom is coming to a Seagulls Ever London meeting uh, imminently quite soon. The timing couldn't be better, really, could it, I suppose? Um, a little bit of to talk about, I'm sure. Except for you. <laughs> Except for me, yeah, because unfortunately I'm away in Italy, uh, so... I won't be able to go, but... Uh, but you're doing local research on Deserby, are you? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> you're going to Holly to are you, and having a... I'm not, no. Doing a local podcast with the... We are flying to Italy, and uh, to, to Milan, sorry. Um, and that's where um, I think he started his playing career, I think. So I'm doing the... I'm starting right from the beginning. I'm doing a full thorough uh, primary research. Uh, <laughs> are you ending up in Donetsk, then? That could be an interesting end to the holiday. Yes, well, uh, yes, I'll, I'll probably do a quick fleeting visit there, I think. <laughs> right, OK, that's end of part one. Part two, we're going to chat a bit more of general football uh, news. There's been plenty more going on, uh, a few controversial bits, and I want to have one or two more rants. I just can't stop myself. So that's all coming up after this break. And so to part two of this episode where we've been talking about Deserby on the brink of being announced as the manager that's being reported as a done deal. The Telegraph, I think, mentioned it. Andy Naylor's apparently tweeted about it now. Several other sources are now saying saying it, it seems the betting's been suspended over the last 24 hours anyway. Um, I did get um, 15 quid on it at four to one, by the way, just to mention. So um, I'm quite happy uh, <laughs> on an additional level, uh, which is great. I'm assuming that there isn't, this isn't a massive um, hoax and it isn't the case. I'm really hoping that's that's not the case. Anyway, um, on to other matters then. Well, we're going to talk about um, the uh, the advent of what's happened in the last week or so. Obviously, the um, the sad loss of the Queen, who passed away on the same day that Graham Potter was announced as the new Chelsea manager. Interesting timing. What that, of course, prompted was um, a, an across-the-board cancelling of all football over that uh, forthcoming weekend, um, which was a week ago, um, including Albion's game at Bournemouth, which probably for us was a blessing in disguise. I would say it's firmly uh, firmly true to say, although it did deprive us of our chance of potentially going top for the first time ever. But um, first of all, on that subject, the cancelling of that weekend's fixtures, rugby went ahead, cricket went ahead, various other sports did as well. Um, there's been a real big debate on this as to whether or not this should have been cancelled or not. It was the decision uh, of the Premier League and the other football bodies, um, as I understand it. Um, they made their own decisions. Do you think it was the right decision? Or um, obviously, from an Albion point of view, it is. Cause we were um, in a weakened position. But just just from a general point of view, um, what, what do you guys think about it? Um, my view was that. That they made the decision very quickly, and at the time it wasn't clear 
what other sports would necessarily do. Mm. And I know that rugby didn't happen in in, um, in Scotland um, initially, one or two. I mean, some fixtures went ahead, but they were the sort of there was a game cancelled. Um, mm. And I think because so many people go to watch football, I think they were probably forced into making a decision quickly. And had they been able to wait, they probably might have gone ahead. On the other hand, it has been really uh, heartwarming to see that every single match that I've seen on TV, after 70 minutes, the crowd has all stood up and applauded uh, the Queen for a minute. Uh, in one of the games I was watching, there happened to be a natural break then. So the players as well as and the coaches and everybody oh, applauded. Yeah. In the Arsenal game, the coaches were applauding. Um, and the fact that she has that recognition this weekend, I think it's nice. It was a mark of respect. And I th- think to err on the side of caution in that was, was the right avenue. A difficult one mm. might not have been needed had they waited, but nonetheless, I, I think OK. Well, Peter, I mean, the, the issue, the, the flip side of that, of course, is that um, there's an argument saying, well, that the best way of honouring her would be for everyone to have had that, that those gestures Raymond's talking about and the impeccably observed minute silences that have been up and down the land as well um, over that weekend, just gone now. Um, we could have done all that that week uh, because um, I think for a lot of people, they would like things to go on rather than wallowing too much about the, the situation. Some people aren't royalists at all, of course, either, and have got no interest in, in spending any time having interruptions to their usual routine. Um, but also there's a the bit of um, people having booked hotels, uh, travel and various other arrangements and, and not having a choice in that regard. bit of a shame for them, maybe. As, uh, it's, it's a tricky one, as Raymond said, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I felt that, yeah, I think the other way around from him, and I think probably they shouldn't have done just on mass cancel all football that weekend, personally. I just, it, it feels like, again, yeah, like you're saying, one of those things where fans were almost put to the, to the fact that it didn't matter about fans. It just, mm. they seemed to be able to do the, the right thing. But it's like, well, I mean, I don't think, I don't particularly think, and, you know, not that I ever met the Queen, but I don't imagine that she'd have particularly been wanting football to be cancelled across the country. To, oh, she's a big sports you know, yeah, it was even more odd when literally England was starting a three-day test match against South Africa uh, on that day. It seemed really odd that, you know, kind of, they literally started it. It cancelled it for the Friday, but it started on Saturday. Yeah. And, uh, so I could have understood the Friday night games being called off, kind of. I, I kind of get that, but the Saturday-Sunday fixtures shouldn't, shouldn't have been called off and they should have stuck with what they had. I could almost understand more this weekend with all the build-up to the... And the need, you know, all the stuff going on. I almost understood it had been cancelled the whole thing we had this weekend rather than last weekend. And it's been, uh, yeah, to have everything at all levels cancelled, you know, was was just, yeah, it didn't really make any sense to me. And no, it, I mean, Croft, it was a shame because I mean, I mean, as much as I think we probably would have lost at Bournemouth, it would have been nice for you know, for Crofts as well to get the chance to be a manager on, you know, you know, might not might be his only chance managing the Premier League. Would have been right. probably quite good to take us to to Bournemouth, and we could have gone top. You never know, and. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt uh, again. I appreciate what Raymond said about the timing. Maybe we, it just wasn't quite right for they'd already made the decision. But I did. I did sit a bit awkwardly with me because I was thinking, well, I'm happy to observe it. I don't have an issue with uh, the Queen or royalty as such. I'm kind of pretty neutral on it actually um, myself, and I know a lot of other people are. But being told what to think, how to feel, or how you should observe something, uh, either from a respectful distance or someone who really did feel some genuine sadness it did feel a bit being told what to do what to think 
sat a bit awkwardly with me. Um, I would have liked there to have been maybe more debate on the matter. Um, yeah. Maybe some, I know obviously, you know, the longer it goes on, the more awkward it is if they decided to cancel it. But um, it, it felt like it was a bit of a rush decision. But anyway, the, the games have gone on this week. Some of them haven't because of um, policing matters and other considerations. And Albion's game wasn't reinstated after the initial rail strike reasons for postponing, um, which would have been the Palace game, of course. Um, so uh, one thing I've got to mention from this weekend, um, I note that um, Celtic fans, who of course notoriously not Royals, uh, have not covered themselves in glory. And they played at St Mirren, I think it was today. Yeah. And um, they, um, they they did a minute's applause, obviously conscious that a minute's silence just simply was not going to be observed respectfully. So it's a minute's applause. But the Celtic fans, of course, travel in massive numbers, made themselves heard very clearly singing. I think it was, you know, you can shove the Royal Family up your ass. So I'm not sure if that was exactly <laughs> what they were singing. Um, but they were singing it relentlessly through the whole minute's applause. Um, what was amusing is they then lost 2 <laughs> 0 in a game they would not have been expecting anything other than three points in, assuming that was a league game. I didn't even. It was, yeah. And I mean, there were other, other ones as well, apparently. There was, was it, I, I read Hibs and Dundee United as well were singing. Yeah. You're really you know, songs and there's no, always no, some no, idiots, but yeah, Celtic obviously in this situation. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I, yeah, I, as with you, I'm very neutral on this, on this. I'm not, you know, particularly pro or anti royalist. Um, but to me, when someone's died, it's very disrespectful to be abusive like that and unpleasant, whatever the situation. Well, if you don't want to, if you don't want to applaud, that's fine. But just yeah, don't yeah, go and sing songs. I mean, the Celtic supporters who went over for the uh, Champions League game to Poland in the week, they had some um, sort of fairly disrespectful um, banners. There. And it's one thing to uh, not observe or, or believe in your own country, but going to a foreign country and doing that, I didn't think reflected well on Celtic, actually. No, I but, didn't. No. OK, they're obviously very well known as being anti-royal and respect their opinion, but I think when a, a figure such as the Queen, who's been on the throne for 70 years and has essentially made her mark really by her dignity, respectfulness, uh, consideration, d- diplomacy... She's essentially been carried herself and the royal family by extension really well. Um, I don't think she deserves that, really, to be honest. Um, what you think about the other royals is another matter, of course. People may not like Charles uh, or, or just the whole concept of it, but I think her as a, a figure of, um, you know, as a figure of the nation, by which I am talking about Great Britain as well, not just England. It's uh, it's a bit of a shame, really, isn't it? They couldn't have been a bit more respectful. Those those teams that did that but anyway we won't dwell on that just needed to acknowledge what had happened really uh the weekend of course the football was back on some interesting results as i said it wasn't a full program in the premier league but um uh, villa got a win against southampton which on the face of it is convenient for us because it just means they pull level on points and nobody gains on us um overall um in terms of closeness to us really um I think Everton beat West Ham with a goal from a certain Mr Neil Morpé Esquire and uh, one of his instinctive finishes no time to think about it goes in the net we've seen this before haven't we um well taken goal by all accounts it's very um, similar to a goal I thought he scored against Wolves a few years ago for us they kind of took it quite early on the edge of the area and hit it into the bottom corner and beat the keeper and yeah reminded me of uh of that goal but yeah very Mopé-esque goal 
if it had been six yards out and he'd had a minute to think about it, he'd have probably put it over the bar. Yeah. Startling um, news, the most startling news, of course, is that Erlen Haaland scored at the weekend as well. Um, didn't see that one coming. Uh, he was one of three scorers of City, one at, at Wolves. And um, Fulham are going rather well, aren't they? They've, um, they, they've got a pretty good result again. I mean, they came from behind to lead 3-1 and eventually win 3-2 at Forest. Um, they're going quite well, Peter. Uh, Arsenal was the other one, of course. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I was say Forest, on the other hand, are looking at very, very dodgy because uh, they had a they had um, you know a really good opportunity to pull away the last couple of games with Bournemouth and Fulham, their two promoted teams that we've promoted with them at home, and they led in both. They led two at home to Bournemouth and one nil against Fulham, and ended up losing and conceding three in both. And that uh, that would really kind of give me worries if I was. I mean, obviously, being second bottom is a worry anyway. But being second bottom after losing those home games, on paper, two of their easier games of the season, yeah. in that style, having taken the lead in both and one being two 0 up as well, is must be giving you know kind of alarm bells to Forest fans who were all like giving it the you know kind of the, the you know, giving it up it- pre-season, saying how they've signed these brilliant players. The other two big winners this weekend, obviously the, the former England players I was talking about earlier in uh, Lampard and Gerrard, who got very very much needed wins in pretty. But dire games, but you know, there was a situation where the result probably could have uh, is more important than the actual uh, performance. Yeah, and one other thing is um, Mitrovic. I think was going for some kind of record. If he'd have scored, um, it would have been five consecutive games. I don't know what that was a club record or something. I'm not sure, but he missed out on that. Uh, Raymond, well, I just uh, say I think for Forest, it's a big ask to have signed 22 new players. And try and bed them in in such a short time. So, I would. Uh, There's I, no judgment. I'd probably judge them more mm. after the World Cup. I think they've. You know, fortunately for them, I mean, there's what the game that was cancelled, obviously. So that's unlikely to be fitted in before the World Cup because of the itinerary it might be. Um, mm. But certainly, they're only about until the World Cup about another eight games or something, eight yeah. nine games. So that. If they've written off sort of 40% of the season, they've still got the other 60%. And if they haven't got too many players away at the World Cup, then they will have the time to, to have effectively a second pre-season. So I think I might judge them. I think Cooper is a good manager and a good coach. And I think that we might see a different forest after that period. So um, the problem is that those are games they need to win, though, those ones. It's not like, you know... I understand. I take your, your point, but you can't write off over a third of the season, you know, two, more than a third of the season, almost half, and say, "Oh well, it's like our team is bidding in." It, you know that by the time the World Cup comes, if they don't get many more points, they could be well adrift. And Maybe they've played six games I think, so they've got a couple of hard games. But they've those two games on paper, arguably, are their easier to easy, two of their easiest ones of the season, and they've lost them both, it, having taken the lead. That that as much as I agree with what you're saying. The worry is that by the time they've bedded in, it might be too late. Yeah, every detail matters, doesn't it? Um, I think the two key elements you've got to get right in your first season up are you've got to manage to score enough goals because you've got to win some games. You can't just draw your way through things. And the other thing is, as you said, Peter, is about seeing games out when you have got the upper hand. Um, OK, if, you're, if you've gone 1-0 up against City, fair enough if you end up losing that game but or something like that. But if, you've, if you're up against a Fulham at home, you've got to see those results out because if you're not yeah. going to get results against Fulham, 
then you've got to get results against someone else. Who who's the someone else? You know, how far down the table do you go? Bournemouth are playing quite well at the moment, getting results. Everyone thought they were going to be bottom of the table. Well, they've got, I think, five points in three games under Gary O'Neill. You know, the points are really hard to come by for anybody that isn't getting all the details right. And yeah, it's a massive challenge to get, as Raymond said, 22 new players because they signed Aurier after the window. Um, it's 22 players now. But to get them all bedded in and playing in any real form of cohesion, it's a massive challenge when you've got the challenge itself of of getting any team to to stabilise in a new division. I don't know what Alan would think, but it, what was interesting this weekend was, I think, the Leicester result, because... It was the first half was almost a replica of what happened against us. Yeah. They they go into the lead, they're then two one down, they then come back, so it's two all at half time. Yeah. And then fall, fall apart in the second half. The only difference is that we scored three in the second half, but arguably it should have been four. Um and Spurs did score four because they didn't have one ruled out. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and it comes up to Son for a thirteen minute substitute hat trick there. Yeah. Interesting stat I thought though this weekend is Leicester's obviously got one point from seven games. And there was a stat that I think nine teams have got one or zero points from seven games. And they were like only four have stayed up. And I was actually that's that's actually quite a lot of teams considering how dreadful their start has been. But the interesting mm. bit was only one of those kept their manager. Um I think that was Dave Jones at Wolves, I think possibly. And the rest have got rid of the other three who stayed up have got rid of their manager. But the, the interest they said they were like just four have stayed up. But actually, when you're in a situation of one point or more or fewer from seven games, actually four teams out of nine staying up is quite a lot. That's pretty good odds considering the start they've had. Yeah, I mean they're averaging towards a five point total or something, aren't they, at the moment? Which Derby fans would be rubbing their hands, aren't they? <laughs> um, I'm sure they'll they'll improve on that at least. But they're already needing you know a reasonable increase in points per game to get up to the 33, 34 that you want. Yeah, they already need what really 32 from they're just this over a one point a game to get to 33, 34, which is the lowest point you probably think of survival. Yeah. Yeah, they're in real trouble there. I and mean, with teams like Southampton have picked up a reasonable number of early points and a few of the other teams like Brentford have done that. Fulham have Fulham, obviously, yeah. Almost said, keeping their heads above water. So Leicester can't afford to be falling too far behind those teams. Um, it's intriguing, isn't it? Um, Alan, I know you wanted to jump back in, didn't you? Yeah, I'm just really picking up on the Leicester because I, I only watched them on match of the, match of the day. But considering they had a break last last weekend, yeah, and they uh, they had the new, the new defender. I can't remember his name. Uh, oh, well, I think uh, Belgium or whatever. Us, us, I think his name is. Yeah, yeah and uh, and if you look at hey, most of the goals, if you look at most of yeah, if you look at most of the goals, he was nowhere near the ball. Yeah, and it makes you wonder what what was uh, Rogers doing because uh, what it was it was totally haphazard. It was uh, it was pretty poor. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing, the other thing I noticed also was Basuma came on in seventy minutes, which was before Son scored his hat trick. Yeah, but I don't think he actually all, all the clips on Match of the Day. I don't think he actually touched the ball. He was he was like wandering around in uh, the kind of deep midfield yeah. area. I think he got one interception. Mike oh, did he get one? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. okay. Um, but what yeah. Raymond said was interesting. I mean, it really was a replica of last week, barring a, a small detail of the scoreline. Um, but what, what's clearly a rep, repetitious, and this is the problem for them, is their defence is, is so poor. And it was picked up again by the pundits at the weekend. Um, they really are struggling. 
aren't they? And um, well, who knows how badly this could go for them this season. Um, but again, they've not, as far as we know so far, they've not sacked Rodgers. I think they're continuing to follow the line that they can't really afford to sack him at the moment. That seems to be the word from the Leicester fans. And um, it's a bit of a paradox that they're getting themselves into here. Uh, Peter? Yeah, you were saying, it's like, they're actually their goal scoring has been pretty good. They've actually, you know, yeah. they've got 20, but they've considered 22 goals in seven games, including obviously 11 in the last two. And you can't, you can't compete like that. However many goals you score, you're not going to be able to compete with that. That's like far too many you know, needed. And they, I think the one game they actually drew, they drew with Brentford in two up. They, were, they lost a 2-0 lead against Brentford. They've been ahead against us. They've been ahead against Spurs. Um, I don't. I can remember what the other games were. They were oh Arsenal. They thought it was four two. So they've had some really high scoring games. But yeah, they they've really kind of they can't like defend to save their lives. I don't think. And yeah, against us, their defence was awful. And I think we could have you know we had a bit better shooting. And also obviously McAllister's goals allowed. We could have had seven or eight to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Alan. Yeah. No. It's, if if he doesn't get the sack, Rogers, then he's got some time there on the training field with them because. I'm not sure how many of their players are actually internationals now. You've got Tiedemann's. Madison wasn't picked, I don't think, for the squad. Bardi's obviously not, not included anymore. Daka, I, I would imagine, would go with Zambia. So uh, I'm not sure who else in their side have got international duty, really. Hopefully not so their defenders, might... judging by the reason. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So he, he, he's, you know, if he does survive, then he's got, he's got a number of weeks to, uh, to work with him on the training field. So, yeah, Final let's, line. let's see. Final line from me on Leicester, actually. One thing I don't think we, we mentioned when we were covering our game against Leicester was, uh, in, in particular, was to praise the skill that Trossard uh, took on to win that penalty. I don't think we actually mentioned that specifically. Um, and having watched it back again more recently, it reminded me of it. I thought, amazing, a little um, sort of drag over and then flick with the same foot to, to get into that position, to, to, to get forward enough to then win the penalty. Uh, for want of a better expression. Um, hats off to him for that. We, uh, we've got to get that on record if we haven't done already. Um, other ga- games this weekend. I mean, one thing I was going to mention with the EFL, it's been quite interesting. I've got a couple of things I wanted to mention about the EFL. First of all, the coverage for the um, the highlights on Saturday evenings, repeated Sunday mornings, um, it's gone from Quest to ITV, uh, which a lot of people are saying, great, it's back with a more familiar channel. Uh, they have technical issues in the first few weeks. I don't know if you guys have watched any of the uh, highlights. They had a horrendous number of mistakes. Um, they were introducing the wrong games a couple of times, um, and then they could get back on track. There was there was bits missing. They they cut off halfway through something. They had a lot of technical issues, and they've got a whole new load of new presenters who are all pretty able and engaging. Actually, they, they all seem fine. People I've not come across before, so they haven't gone with. Um, uh, Colin Murray or any other, is it Colin Murray or uh, normally have the Irish? Uh, Colin Murray is an Irish from half the rugby union, by the way. Yeah, maybe not. I'm not sure. Anyway, <laughs> but, um, anyway, um, yeah, I mean, they have sorted that out, thankfully, but uh, that was a bit of an unfortunate situation. Um, thankfully, it's sorted. Um, the other thing is just from the EFL, um, I don't know if you guys have seen that Coventry have gone for a retro kit this year, which um, is the one where they've got that curved sort of outwardly curving double line that goes down, curves outwards on each side of the uh, chest. Um, anyone that's watched football in the 80s will know what I'm talking about. So they've got the usual sky blue colours with a sort of like a, a, a an in, internal trim that bends outwards on it. Looks really cool. I've got a Subutio team, actually, of that. Um, but I'm hoping the Cov fans are enjoying that. They had a specials tribute 
um, kit at one point as well. I think one of their away kits um, one year. So they've, they've, they've been doing some interesting stuff with kits. Hats off to them. And speaking of kits, we're going to get Phil Shelley on soon as well from uh, Old Football Shirts. He'll be um, joining us, I think, in one of the up-and-coming weeks to talk all about football kits, I'm sure. Um, the weekend's other games, a um, couple of words about... Um, well, and any Albion loanies or any other games that stood out from the EFL or beyond? Um, well, Zakiri and uh, um, and Adringa both scored over the weekend, which is good hmm. um, for us. Ingram, <laughs> that's USG third goal, isn't it for them? And, this year. And, and young master where um, did the assist for uh, the equalising goal for Morecambe at home? Who is that? Sorry, Raymond. Uh, Master Weir, by David's son. Oh, Master Weir. <laughs> yeah. Master Weir. He, he, he got the assist in, in uh, about a third minute of uh, extra time yeah. Uh, yeah. for their equalising goal uh, in League One. Yeah. Yeah, he scored a good goal, actually, a couple of weeks ago himself, Jensen Weir. Um, really good, well-taken goal from just outside the area. Um, so he's doing well. Yeah, it's good to see him getting regular games because he didn't really at um, Cambridge last season. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Um, what else has caught the eye? Anything else? Um, well, a couple of sackings. So Cardiff have sacked their manager um, and Hartlepool. And last week, obviously, Burton did as well. So it's, been, it's obviously getting into the point where there's going to be sackings, especially, I suppose, the top two divisions because they've got the two weeks, the only international break before the World Cup. So there might be one or two uh, teams pulling the plug on their manager at this point. Yeah. Um, and the, the Hartlepool manager, of course, former player of theirs, Peter Hartley, <laughs> and they had didn't they have someone called Paul in the team when Hartley was playing as well? I think. Oh, yeah, I think they did. Yeah, brilliant. I think what they're what they're looking to do now is just uh, if they can't go for something like that, they're going they're going to go for Mister United as, as the uh, as the uh, next manager just to try and kind of, you know, follow the set. Yeah. Oh, and there is one other piece of uh, amusing um, news, and that is um, uh, what was happening in France. At, um, Today. Oh, yes. Go on, Raymond. Uh, yes, tell us well, more. Um, for, for those of you who follow sort of Brighton players on their travels, Seema plays for Angers and uh, his side kicks off and uh, they pass the ball back and the ball gets passed forward, uh, clicks it on uh, for Seema to run onto. The defender, uh, Torito, um, uh, takes him out. He, he would have been there in the town and gets a red card. <laughs> He's actually committed the foul five seconds after the start of the game. It takes the referee sprinting up from the halfway line. Doesn't break his step, apparently. Takes the red card out of his white pocket and bounces it. From the kickoff to the actual card being produced is nine seconds, which four seconds was taking the card out of the pocket. Absolutely magnificent. And this is in League One in France. This is not sort of some lower division. Of course... (laughs) The person on the receiving end of the foul, needless to say, was a Brighton player. Yeah, and I, I don't think it's possible for that not to be a world record, is it? I mean, uh, okay, I don't think people normally the, the opposing teams normally don't come into you know t- don't go anywhere near each other in that time quite often. It's just yeah, but, yeah that's right. He, then, he would have been in the clergy right on the edge of the penalty box, apparently. Yeah. So, and and Nice, you know, established side. Um, mm. Isn't it a certain Mr. Smichael of who kept Leicester in the first in the Premier League? Season, they're, they're goalkeepers. And and Aaron Ramsey, and they've got a few others as well. I think they've signed they've mm. signed quite a few. Oh, uh, Ross Barkley gone there as well. Oh right, I think maybe. Okay. Oh. 
Well, I, I have to say hats off to the ref for sprinting over and minimising the amount of time that they could have extended that world record out. So you want it nice and tight. Nine seconds is great. Nice um, and tight. Nice and tight. Nice and Nice and tight, yes. Uh, absolutely, I'm well impressed with that. And these are other things. Brighton women sadly lost 4-0. Yeah. I'll come back to that, if I may, in a second. The under-18s lost 3-0 to Tottenham, their first defeat. Oh, in fact, non-win of the season. Um, and the under-21s lost 1-0, needless to say, at Everton. Everton were winning their games this weekend, 1-0. Um, so... Apparently, that played quite well, I think, the under-21s, but just didn't convert the chances. But yeah. it's, uh, uh, so perhaps it was a good weekend, given that we did lose the one behind closed doors game 2-1, a good game for a weekend not to be playing. Perhaps it just wasn't our weekend. Yeah. But coming back to the 4-0 one, it'd be interesting to see if we appeal the red card, because apparently um, our player was sent off after seven minutes. Yeah. But the Arsenal player they brought down was a good yard offside, apparently. And therefore, had VAR been being used, that would not have been a red card offence because the player was offside. It would have it been... I would, I would yeah. like to imagine that the club will appeal that red card decision. I don't think you can on that situation. Uh, I think it's only if it's not a professional foul you could appeal. I don't think... Because, the offside is it's irrelevant in that situation whether it's right or wrong. I don't think if it's not a professional foul they could appeal if there was a player covering and a referee got it wrong. But I don't think they can if it's hmm. if it's so the offside still, should have been so given. She'll still get the ban. But I, anyway, I just thought it was a um, a little bit a little bit harsh. So, you know, it's that's where it's for that sort of thing one wants to have bar where it's a clear and obvious. It's not a question with. If it's half an inch or something offside, I mean, a yard is, you know, fairly decisive, I would have thought. This too soon to send people off thing seems to be blowing out the water this weekend, doesn't it? That doesn't seem to be a thing anymore. Seven minutes and nine seconds, uh, players going off. Um, uh, There we go. Um, Alan, um, switching back to you, anything that's caught your eye this weekend? Do you have any other teams you follow as well, just as a kind of soft spot team, for example? Yeah, well, I've, I, I follow what's going on with Eastbourne because, uh, my old hometown, but, uh, yeah. I wanted to talk about the ladies game actually. It's just a little observation, a little bit, um, not, not necessarily to do with the football. It's just, uh, as you know, I've always had this beef with, uh, with the media and how they kind of play down non-toxic club, but uh, something, a little observation really, because I always give, uh, if you like, the, particularly the commercial media, um, you expect them, if you like, to to big up the top six because at the end of the day they need to get their listeners. Uh, they're, they're, that's where they're going to get the listeners from in men's football. But I've noticed there seems to be a trend in ladies' football where you, that isn't really the case, where they still talk about Arsenal, Chelsea, Manchester City. Uh, and I was listening listening to, um, I think it was Radio Five Live yesterday, and they were talking about the the ladies' game and the Arsenal game, and they just switched over to all the men's top six teams and didn't talk about any of the other teams at all. Yeah. And I thought, well, well, hang on a second. I mean, that's now, that's not just a a commercial decision that they're doing that because at the end of the day, they haven't got the listeners. I'm sure they haven't got the, the, uh, the support from the big six clubs following the men's ladies football. So it's not, it's not, it's unnecessary, unnecessary to do that. 
I think it's historic so, collective conditioning. It, it seems to be a, it's an illness that permeates the media, because I agree with you. I've noticed this as well. Uh, the big build-ups of the season, there's yeah, really not that much coverage of the other side. And, and what's annoying is I think teams like Everton are starting to be a bit more ambitious. So that's going to become even more of an issue now because they'll they'll tap into those sort of clubs. But maybe yeah. not. If we're talking about history, isolated with the women's game only, uh, we've got more history than Man United have because they only started the team after we did mm-hmm. in in earnest, and they've only been in the divi- the top division after after us. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, very, it's, I don't it's know, more resources yeah. spent more, but it's, it's just a, really a thought. It's just an opportunity for them to be more inclusive of all the different yeah. clubs, but they don't have to focus on those top clubs because they're not being forced to just mm-hmm. talk about them because they know that that's where their listeners are coming from. You know, they've got an opportunity to kind of build up. The Brightons and the the Birmingham's and, and the others, the other teams in the WSL, just as much, and uh, it's just, it's disappointing, really. How much um, emphasis and I, value is put on listenership right? rather than it's obviously not for commercial reasons, but do they still put too much emphasis on how many people are listening? Um, is this not where they could be a bit more creative and reach other yeah, elements? Exactly. Yeah. Raymond, yeah. Am I right in this? I I, I can't remember where. This last season, our ladies' team finished. Well, I have an idea it might have been sixth. I know yeah. it was something like fifth or sixth the, the season before. If it mm. was, that means we've had two seasons where we finished in the top six or the top division in women's football. So, by definition, that should make us a, a top six as a women's club. Yeah. And, and we've lost a lot yeah. of our better players this summer. You know, yeah. um, yeah, yeah, I think that that's frustrating. And switching it back to the men's game as well, even with all we've done and the raised profile of our men's team, there's still when when they talk about teams that aren't top six, they'll mention Brighton a lot now because they're seen as what you can do if you're not top six. They'll they'll mention us, but they'll quite often pair us with Brentford, which is interesting. And I know that we've had a lot some similar philosophies, and we run the, we're both well run clubs. So if that's all they're looking at, or if they're looking at teams that have come into the league. More recently, that's fair enough. But I can't help thinking that they're thinking of the clubs as the same size. When, quite frankly, we are a lot larger, big, larger club than Brentford. Not that's a, the be all and end all of anything. But I don't know. It just feels like anything that's not top six or seven. They've they've got this condescending, almost. I'm not really sure about the details. I'm not going to bother finding out um, vibe to it. Peter, well, I was going to say it's, it's uh, condescending is a good word. I was going to say patronising. It's always whenever they talked about it, it always feels like it's a bit like. You know, like, oh, isn't it, isn't it nice that, you know, little old Brighton are doing so well and all, you yeah. know, competing with the big teams like Villa and Leeds and Newcastle and that sort of thing and, and you know, kind of beating te- beating the big six. But it always feels to me like a match day if we beat even even one of them, but certainly one of the big clubs, the focus a lot of the time is on how badly the other team played yeah. and not so much on how well we've played. And it always seems that teams have a bad day when we play them in, under Potter the last like, the last 15 games, we've heard, especially we've heard it a lot. And teams haven't turned up and teams haven't done well. And it's like, well, maybe at some point, if teams keep having bad games against one team, it's actually that team working out their strengths and weaknesses and, and playing against them that way. As in, like, at United, when we obviously worked out that their defence was pretty limited in, like, pace and in the air. And we basically exploited that by going, you know, with a well bet going deeper and going longer more of the time, you know. And even after the game, Ten Hag basically said, we played, long, we played a long ball. We didn't quite get it right there, but we played it a lot more direct than we have done before. 
and it, and it obviously took him by surprise. And that's why we're, you know, hard to play against Thunder Potter. And hopefully that will continue, that we, we don't just play a certain way. We, we adapted the last 15 games and we played a lot better different ways, like probably 15 different ways of playing over those 15 yeah, games. I mean, we've reached our particular height in under Potter and in, in particularly end of last season and this season. And that's where the escalation of attention and praise has really started to come in uh, in Potter's final few games there. Um, do you think it's a case of when we get this new guy in, or we have now got him in, whatever, you know, when he gets established, and if he does as well or better, is it only is it going to take that for, for... Do you think that will change the recognition? Do you think it'll be, oh, hang on, Brighton got it right again? No. It, yeah. I think we're always going to be little old Brighton, I'm afraid. It's like, right, you know, yeah. we against the big six, and then Everton, Villa, Newcastle, Leeds, you know, the perceived next layer of clubs as well to a lot of people. We're always going to be little old Brighton punching against our weight. You know, we could be in Premier League for 30 seasons in a row and still be, you know, kind of have that. They still have their patronising tone and that sort of thing. I think it's just the way of the, the way the media is basically largely. One thing on that, I had an exchange with a Leicester fan. He's a perfectly reasonable guy, but he, it was something Sutton said to try and provoke um, supporters uh, talking about Postacoglu wouldn't go to a small club like Brighton or something like that. And obviously he does that to wind people up. But anyway, the, the debate went on and I ended up in an exchange with the Leicester fan who was saying, um, suggesting they were a bigger club. And I said, oh, why, why bigger? If you're talking about history, yeah, you've won the league, the FA Cup now and the League Cup. So yeah, trophy-wise, 100%. But in terms of size, and then he started showing some stats of previous years and I said well those are distorted because of circumstances we were with Dean and so on um and then and once I pointed that out he was perfectly reasonably saying oh, okay fair enough yeah actually I'll see what you mean my point was that we're the same size as Leicester Wolves Southampton um and other clubs who aren't in the Prem like Derby and Forest at the moment Fulham. as well oh, Fulham. Yeah, Fulham. well yeah I mean arguably you could even say larger than Fulham because we're getting big crowds but basically we're roughly that size aren't we in terms of fan base is how I would judge how big a club yeah. is um obviously yeah if you're talking about the big six then, then you talk about the pull that Chelsea have beyond their fan their, their attendances but they've got two smaller grounds so it all gets a bit wishy-washy in the detail but essentially I think we're the same size as those clubs I've just listed but in the in the heads of those guys perfectly reasonable guys like that Leicester fan until I sort of debated the matter with him he hadn't thought of us as being that size of club and yet I, I think we are we had a waiting we've been so down. low down haven't we and everyone I think that's what it is isn't it because we were so down for so long but then I mean will Sunderland will Portsmouth get that kind of thing when they come back up. Sunderland are a bigger club than us um, in fan base, but would Portsmouth get that? Because Portsmouth have been in the Prem and so on, but they've been down for quite a while now, haven't they? I think that's the thing. I think it's a whole generation of fans who think football ended and started and ended with the Premier League. And so (laughs) if you've been in the Premier League, then you're probably a bit different. So Portsmouth obviously were. We were never in the Premier League before this spell. So, you know, it kind of like almost got forgotten. You know, it kind of like... We we were literally only in it. For, I mean, we. I, I think I can see why it people like. I mean, Leicester and Derby and that sort of teams have been in the top flight a lot more than us over the years. Even ignoring the, the since the, up to the ni- in the nineties when we were in such a dire situation, but a lot of these teams have been in. I mean, Wolves have been in Premier League in the top flight a lot more than we have over the years, and I can see why they would regard themselves a lot bigger club than us historically. I can also see the logic of saying that similar sort of fan base and level. I mean, we have a huge catchment area. We have one, you know, we have one of the biggest catchment areas probably of any club in the country. You look at the number of clubs anywhere near us, and it's basically Crawley and obviously then the Sussex non-league group like Worthing and Eastbourne. So, 
I mean, on paper, you know, we have such a big area to get to attract players from to attract well, fans and yeah. that sort of thing. And You've got to go up to, to Palace or Fulham or you've got to go across to um, Portsmouth. Um, you know, that's the sort of area before you come up with a club of reasonable size. I, I, I'd throw Middlesbrough in as about the same size, I think, as us. Yeah. And it's interesting, if we go back to 1957-58, I think it's that season, or at least our first year in, in, in Division 2. Um, I mean, our first match away to Middlesbrough, uh, people may or may not be aware of, but I think long-time fans will be, we lost 9-0. Um, mm. A certain Brian Clough scored five goals. Um, we, we lost the return match, 6-4. And... <laughs> 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 I think uh, Brian got another, I think it was four, but I may be wrong. It may have only been three. On the other hand, at the end of that season, we finished 12th and they finished 14th. So it might have started badly and and it took us time, you know, two or three weeks to adjust the first four or five games and then we played okay. So it can happen, but Middlesbrough, I would say, but I think you raised an interesting thing because there is a, Russell, you talked about Potter and the fact that everybody's saying, well, Potter, we played good football. I don't know whether there's going to be a sort of expectation that without Potter, we won't do as well, whether that's a sort of thought. But there's also the other side of the coin. Had Potter taken us as far as Potter could, did it need or does it need somebody else to take us to the next level. I mean, obviously, time will tell, and you know, we don't know yet. But perhaps having a change of manager might be a positive. It might turn out to be a positive. And uh, apart from the extra twenty-two million in the bank and everything else, having somebody else coming in with with ideas, playing, building from what Potter has laid down the foundation there, but perhaps being able to reap more points than we have done. You know, mm. the, the number of times last season, we really, and, and to a lesser extent the season before, we should have got more points than we did. We began to manage games better, I thought. The end of games, hold on to positions. Um, and we, our defence was that much tighter. I mean, yeah. generally, I think uh, there was more belief in, in, in the club. And that was down to the start, I think, partly. But I just beg the question, you know, is this a moment of change that we needed, even if it was forced on us? Yeah, good question. I, I was going to say, I have seen a few comments online that Deserby actually is an upgrade on Potter. And, yeah, whether that then translates from the Ukrainian and Italian leagues into the English league, who knows? I mean, we don't, we don't, no one knows what these, you know, you can appoint like world-class managers or whatever, and they don't do, don't do well in a different league or whatever, but and the other interesting thing I think I read was his assistant manager at Shakhtar was a forward, which is something I think we've lacked quite a lot over the years. We haven't really had a, a forward on the coaching staff. Um, so if he can, if he is, if it is, if that's true and he's coming with him and he can try and like train some of our forwards up to finish chance better, it, it could actually be that we, you know, I think we, we've, we've started to score more goals from midfield, but I do think that I am still slightly concerned about the lack of forwards and also the lack of goals from Welbeck and the lack of chances as well that he's got. It, it, it's not ideal if you're a striker. As much as he, I think he's played really well, he's had one real chance, I'd say, and that was a header he missed at Man U. 
other than that, as our main forward, he hasn't really had any chances. And I, I, I'm not sure you can keep relying on your midfielders and hopefully at some point defenders to score. You do need your striker contributing. And if they're not getting any chances to score, that is a concern as much as the system's working generally. Hmm. Um, and also, obviously, the lack of the limited options as well. I mean, hope, it'll be interesting to see what he, you know, there might be some players who, I mean, Lamptey must be one who really hopes to benefit from this. He seems to have dropped out of the picture completely in terms of regular, in terms of starting. Um, Undav, obviously, Matoma, players like that, um, you know, may well end up coming in, starting more regularly under the new manager and one or two favourites of Possers might drop out a little bit more or whatever. So March might be one who's a little bit concerned given his, the, the mixed views, should we say, of some of our fans for him and the fact that he was obviously one of Potter's favourites, but the new manager in charge, will he get the same game time? Yeah, as you know, one manager to another, you get players suddenly get a new lease of life under a different manager and who knows what who that might be and what that might be. Um, Alan? Yeah, I think it was a good point that Peter made and I think it's interesting to see if he can get something out of more out of Undaf and get him more involved in mm. the game because he's, he's, he is the, if you like, the the other senior striker that we have in our squad. Um, but going back to what I said earlier in the pod, um, you know, our defensive shape has been so, so good with Potter, uh, which, I mean, obviously we defend right from the front to the back. But uh, if you think about it, how much does Sanchez have to do in a game? In all the games we play, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, uh, lower side or it's if Liverpool or Man City, you know, they're, they're, they're they don't have to do a lot. It's amazing, actually, and, uh, and that's something that uh, it's going to be interesting to see whether we can keep that going, really, because I think it's, imp- it's an important part of a game. I yeah. think his distribution has been very... I mean, I, there's one pass in particular I remember from last season where he did the ball right out up, and might be this season, to sort of Trossard, and then we ended up scoring a goal sort of about three seconds later. And a couple of times out, out to Cucurella, well down the left wing, and we scored. Um, I think it's distribution. I think one of the comments I, I referred to in the first half, the, uh, the, the two uh, pundits that they were quoting on Sussex Live, and one of them was saying that probably we were, uh, under Potter, we were quite good without the ball. And he was saying that the Zerbis sides are better with the ball. Hmm. So, um, so that's... I think you've often it. said about the fact that we seem to do better with Potter without the ball. As, we, as you say, it's kind of like we uh, we seem to have better results when we don't have as much of the ball and when we have the more chance to kind of, you know, counter. And, you know, the, the, the games where we have maybe 60, 70% possession are often the ones where we don't score. We don't quite... Even though we have we dominate and we have like we we missed chances, we have problems. But yeah, we'll have like thirty five, forty or forty percent possession and do better. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Um guys, I don't know if you've got any more points on that, but I think we probably should wrap it up now. Just one one thing I've I meant to mention for the for the weekend's um action. Worthing have been going very well in the uh, National League South. They keep drawing at home but finally crack that nut by coming from behind uh two 0 down to win three two in midweek against Chesant who they got promoted with last season. And they followed that up by finally, well, it feels like finally, winning a cup match in the FA Cup 
um, second qualifying round, which is their first uh, match of the uh, this year's competition. Uh, they came from behind again to win uh, 3-1 away at Slough Town. Um, so they are into the third qualifying round. It will be quite nice to see them get a cup run. Um, and obviously they're in the same division as Eastbourne Borough, who are going quite steadily, as you mentioned, yep. Alan. Um, so good luck to them. Well done to them as well. Um, any other thoughts or uh, burning points before we wrap up, guys? Right. Okay. Well, on well, that. Like that, obviously, very soon, um, with a, a Italian is the new Brighton manager. And certainly, in the yeah. they're saying saying that his he's coming, you know, expected to come with his, all his backroom staff from his last two clubs. Mm. Yeah, indeed. It'd be, it would be interesting to see whether he did all his meet if he was at the club over the weekend. Whether he did all his media work before he went off to Italy. So if they do announce it, then they've got all the videos, the clips and the photos and all that kind of stuff already. That to do with all the visa stuff and all the other various elements. That would make sense yeah. why it's taken so yeah. long, given that he's a free agent. And obviously it's mm. about getting the personal terms sorted as well. Um, at least he doesn't have to do a medical. <laughs> I suppose there's one thing there. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't they? Maybe they do. Um, but yes, I think it's all tied up. And the announcement, obviously, we're speaking today or Sunday evening, um, the Queen's funeral is tomorrow, so it won't be then because that just wouldn't seem appropriate to make any announcements then. So it sounds like it's going to be announced on Tuesday. Um, and it seems it's going to be Roberto Deserbi. So we're looking forward to seeing what he can offer. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please uh, give us ratings online if you can. You can look us up on Patreon if you wanted to donate to our calls as well. Uh, all the details are in the episode notes on this episode and on all the others. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you to Alan for joining us for the first time on Zoom rather than a match day special. Hope you've enjoyed yeah. that. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed. I hope you enjoyed what I had to say. <laughs> yeah, all, yeah, all very insightful. It's all good. Raymond the Gent, thank you, Raymond. My pleasure and most enjoyable. Thank you, Russ, for such a stimulating programme. Oh, well, glad to be of assistance. And Peter, stand or fall. Up the Albion. Well, 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 what do you know? Pretty much as soon as we finished recording that podcast, the news was announced on Sunday evening that Deserbi has been appointed Albion's new number one, the, the head coach. Uh, the Albion website has put up a message saying, Deserbi confirmed as new head coach. It's written by Paul Camlin and it reads, We are delighted to confirm the appointment of Roberto Deserbi as the club's new head coach on a four-year contract subject to the granting of a work permit. The 43-year-old Italian agreed final contractual terms with the club late on Sunday afternoon, having first met Tony Bloom, Paul Barber and David Weir in London earlier this week. He flew into Sussex for the first time on Friday night and watched a behind-closed-doors friendly at the Amex on Saturday afternoon. Chairman Tony Bloom said, I am absolutely thrilled Roberto has agreed to become our new head coach. Roberto's team play an exciting and courageous brand of football and I am confident his style and tactical approach will suit our existing squad um, superbly. Technical director David Weir said... Roberto has shown his undoubted ability with his work in Italy and Ukraine and what he achieved at Sassuolo certainly stands out. In his short spell with Shakhtar, he enjoyed further success, um, leading the club to a cup success and to topping the Ukrainian league before the war broke, 
brought an abrupt halt to his time there. We are delighted to welcome Roberto and we look forward to introducing him to our squad as well as providing all the support he needs to introduce his coaching philosophy and help the players continue their brilliant start to the season. Deputy Chairman and Chief Executive Paul Barber added, We looked at a range of excellent candidates, but Roberto was our number one choice from the start and the only person we spoke to. It's no secret that our chairman is constantly monitoring potential coaches, both here in our domestic leagues, throughout Europe and across the world, as part of our succession planning work. You feel Roberto is the ideal cultural and technical fit for Brighton and Albion and the right person to continue the club's progress and work with this outstanding group of players. Roberto cut his teeth in coaching in the Italian lower leagues, uh, reads the report, with Darlo Buario and Foggia, spells in Serie A with Palermo and Benevento followed before he became coach of Sassuolo, where his attacking style and possession-based approach really caught the eye. He led the small Armenian club to consecutive 8th place finishes in Syria before accepting an offer to join Shakhtar Donetsk. His time in Ukraine was cut short by the Russian invasion, but not before he led the club to the Ukrainian Super Cup and he left the club top of the first division. I think I understand they, uh, they actually beat Dynamo Kiev in uh, one of the games as well there. Um, anyway, the report continues. Once the necessary work permit is processed, Roberto will be Albion's first Italian head coach. Contracts with his coaching team have also been agreed, subject to work permits, with the intention that the group will be in place for Albion's match at Anfield against Liverpool on Saturday week. As a mark of respect to Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth II, the club has delayed Roberto's formal introduction to the media until Tuesday afternoon. So there it is, news that he has been confirmed as the new manager, our first head coach from Italy, as stated in the report. And it's an exciting, a really exciting appointment. Um, there's a report in a magazine online called Football Italia, which has an article from from Guardiola to Ukraine war. Five things you may not know about the Brighton coach. That's worth checking out, actually, as one of a number of things uh, talking about his past as well. Um, plenty of other reports online, lots of good uh, research and receptions. Uh, a pretty <laughs> amusing bit on Twitter as well, the actor Daniel Mays, for anyone that knows him, from uh, various films and TV work. Uh, he looks a little bit like one of the pictures that's been posted online. So he said, uh, I'm delighted to be taking over at Brighton. Uh, thanks to the chairman and all, all his board for their support in appointing me, uh, which I thought was quite amusing. But There's also a uh, report coming on the BBC's website describing the appointment. They read it as follows. Brighton have appointed former Shakhtar Donetsk and Sassuolo boss Roberto De Zerbi as manager. The Italian, 43, has been out of work since leaving Shakhtar in July because of the war in Ukraine. Deserbi has signed a four-year contract at the Amex Stadium subject to a work permit. He was Brighton's first choice to replace Graham Potter, who quit to take over from Thomas Tuchel at Chelsea this month. Former Napoli midfielder Deserbi, who impressed during three years in charge at Italian club Sassuolo, has brought his coaching staff with him, although all will need work permits. It is hoped the coaching structure will be in place for Brighton's next match against Liverpool and Anfield on October the 1st. He says... Um, oh, sorry... Um, Tony Bloom says, I'm absolutely thrilled Roberto has agreed to become our new head coach. Um, Roberto's teams play an exciting and courageous brand of football, and I'm confident his style and tactical approach will suit our existing squad superbly, etc., etc. The rest of the quotes as before. Um, 
Really, um, the only other thing to say, well, that, that report also says fourth in the Premier League. They have not played since Potter's departure with matches against Bournemouth and Crystal Palace postponed. Um, they've got an analysis section, actually, which is interesting. Um, BBC Sports' Simon Stone has written it, and that says that Deserby was only the only candidate Brighton spoke to. His availability is a major factor, but there is also an attraction to the work he did with Sassuolo. Successive eighth-place finishes in Serie A involve finishing above more established clubs, which is something Brighton are looking to do themselves after their ninth placed Premier League finish last term. Had it not been for a marginally worse goal difference, it would have been Sassuolo who qualified for the Europa Conference League last season rather than Roma, who went on to win the tournament under Jose Mourinho. Games against Liverpool and Tottenham represent a tough start to Deserbi's Brighton tenure, and with Manchester City, Chelsea and Arsenal to face before the World Cup, he will have done exceptionally well if he can keep Brighton close to their current position, says Simon Stone. So... That's the report from the BBC. And they mentioned, of course, the coaching staff. He does seem to have a sizable amount of coaches that he likes to work with. Now, as I understand it, Davide Possantini, who is one of those, I think is suited in another position. But the rest of them seem to all be available. Fitness coach Vincenzo Teresa, uh, another fitness coach, Marcatillo, uh, I think it's Marcatellini. I think it's pronounced. Um, there's also Agostino Tibaldi, another fitness coach. Uh, Michele uh, Cavalli, who's a methodology coach. Uh, Giorgio Bianchi, a goalkeeping coach, of course, an important role to fill following Ben Roberts' departure. Salvatore Monaco, a skills coach. Uh, Paolo Bianco, who's also a, described as a skills coach, although I understand he may also be in other employment. Those two who have been um, taken other situations vacant may possibly be still part of the equation. It might be that we're trying to get them back in, I'm not sure. But the rest of that is expected to be his backroom staff. Um, a lot of roles to fill. Um, so it works out quite well if he does have a lot of staff he wants to bring in, quite frankly, given that we've lost so many of those people when Graham Potter left. Anyway, that sums up the uh, the rest of this episode. As predicted, we did need an epilogue for this episode. We'll be back next week with a further look and some more opinions on Deserbi and any other football news, Albion or otherwise, to relate in the meantime. Possibly with one or two uh, new debutants making their guest appearances on the podcast. Until then, thanks again. And once again, I'll say, stand or fall, up the Albion. Sports Social Podcast Network.